ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and here in Seoul, it is the early morning on Saturday, the 5th of September. But in Washington, D.C., it is still the evening of Friday, the 4th of September. And my guest today joins me via Skype from Washington, D.C. And my guest is Marcus V. Garlauskas. He is an independent strategic analyst who has specialized in North Korea for two decades. He led the U.S. intelligence community's strategic, ally- uh, sorry, strategic analysis on North Korea as the National Intelligence Officer for North Korea from July 2014 to June 2020 after serving in U.S. Forces Korea for 12 years. He is now a proud independent and also a non-resident senior fellow with the Scowcroft Center of the Atlantic Council associated with its Asia Security Initiative. You can follow him on Twitter at Mr. Underscore G Underscore 2. Now, if I'm not mistaken, well, uh, first of all, welcome on the show and thanks for joining me today, Marcus. Thanks, Jacko. And if I'm not mistaken, G2 is a military term for an intelligence person. Is that right? That That is absolutely correct. So it's a little bit of a joke being Mr. G2. Right. Uh, Mr. G has been my longtime nickname, but it's also, yeah, a reference to my intelligence background. There you go. Okay. Now, uh, your former title from 2014 to 2020 was the National Intelligence Officer for North Korea. Is there one for each country? Is that how it works? So the National Intelligence Council uh, consists uh, of uh, intelligence officers that have both uh, geographic uh, and uh, functional portfolios. Um, So there's not one for each country. They're for uh, generally regions of the world. North Korea is actually the the smallest of the geographic portfolios, a very important one. But Mm. uh, is there a separate NIO for South Korea? uh, uh, No, no. Okay, so uh, so South Korea gets uh, uh, subsumed into a more uh, regional role by another officer, does it? I mean, South Korea is an ally, so really they're they're not a uh, they're not a target focus. You know, it would be in is sort of in the uh, in the larger East Asia portfolio, uh, technically speaking. Okay, so how did you get into intel and strategic work on North Korea? I actually, from a very early age, decided that I wanted to uh, really focus on uh, national security issues um, and 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 essentially plan to be a military officer. Uh, so I probably watched a little bit uh, too many World War II movies uh, growing up, uh, read a lot of military history, uh, and then uh, also uh, became very interested in in military strategy. I was probably read Sun Tzu when I was like 10 years old. I owe a lot to my father. He was uh, sort of my professor in a lot of this. So uh, by the time I was in high school, I was pretty set on a military career. I was the the head of my um, the commander of my uh, my cadet group uh, in junior ROTC. Went through Army ROTC uh, in college, um, but then uh, then I had to uh, sort of reinvent myself a little bit because I ran into uh, a medical issue that made it so I couldn't uh, continue on an active duty career. And of course, this was in the period between the uh, the Gulf War and September 11th when. Uh, medical waivers are very hard to get in the army, and so so I had to recalibrate. Um, and and based on uh, my experience and my interest in the fact that I was already, uh, you know, had had the service, I'd already sworn the oath. I wanted to find a way to continue uh, to to serve, um, and that was what uh, led me to uh, become a government civilian. And because of all of my background and reading about strategy and intelligence, and and watching a lot of good World War II movies growing up, where the intelligence officer makes the critical call so the general. Can, or the admiral can win the battle. Uh, it made me realize that intelligence was a place where, as a civilian, I could really make a big difference. That led me to to then go back to school and get a get a graduate degree at Georgetown. And while I was there, that was really where I made this uh, pivot, 
so first I, I pivoted from being wanting to uh, to pursue this military path and then pivoting to a, a civilian government path. Um, and then at Georgetown, I pivoted uh, from a focus on really European security issues to focusing on East Asia as I realized the so growing you pivoted to Asia, pivoted to Asia long before. Uh, you know, anyone else had coined that term, right? right. And Korea, it's, it's quite fashionable now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Korea being, you know, at the center uh, geographically and strategically of Northeast Asia, where there's this huge concentration of uh, economic power and really the interests uh, uh, in many ways of the world of, of global security of the United States, I, I really felt focusing on, on Korea was the way to go. And then, of course, uh, later on, after I'd been in the, uh, the government already working at the National War College, I had this opportunity to take the assignment to Korea uh, to work in the uh, in the J two, not in the G two, in the intelligence section there, and uh, as the saying goes, the rest is history. So, so uh, G is intelligence, and J is, is strategy. Is that right? Uh, so, no, G is for uh, a, a ground forces organization, like an army organization. It'll be G two, but when you get to the joint level, ah. uh, where you have all the services involved, that's where it goes to J two. So, uh, actually, I later I worked in the J five, which which is uh, the where the strategy office uh, was was located. Now, what was it like doing intelligence work on North Korea? Uh, so it's fascinating stuff, and obviously, you know, I, I can't go into uh, into a lot of details. Um, but I think the most important thing for your listeners to understand is that I- intelligence on North Korea it's it's not omniscient, and it's not really trying to be. Your your resources, your time, they're they're finite. So when you're yep. doing intelligence. You're, you're focused on a specific audience, what you, you know, we'd call them customers or clients. And so what that audience needs to make their decisions, that's really going to frame how you're going to spend your, your time and your resources. So there's this big misconception, I think, that you're you're reacting to the information that's coming in or that you're spending all this time, you know, kind of independently trying to unravel these mysteries or secrets mm. um, and trying to understand everything that's going on. It's just not practical. I mean, we're we are not in the business of uh, trying to tell the president what Kim Jong-un had for breakfast, uh, you know, as some people would would joke, right? Right. I mean, it'd be kind of silly, right? What what would it be worth spending millions of dollars or putting someone's life at risk to find out some kind of trivial detail? And what what that what would that inform? Um, so so I think that's one one misconception I like to clear up. But I think at the other end of the spectrum, there's this mistaken idea that intelligence is just completely stymied and, and clueless when it comes to North Korea. And just because we call it a hard target, this doesn't, it doesn't mean it's this black hole where we, where you can't get any info. I think there's limitations. There's a lot of conflicting and bad information out there, but we use these uh, techniques called uh, good analytic trade craft to, to cut through a lot of this and to help fill in the gaps. Uh, and I think that it's really effective. And a lot of times it actually matters a lot more than the technology we use or the sensitive sources we have is just using really good rigor, uh, tradecraft, which is really just professionalism, taking a very rational, evidence-based approach. And the community, I think, got a lot better at this and learned about it in the aftermath of the September 11th uh, and Iraq WMD analysis, where where it really drove the community to be much more professional on analysis. And, and I think the last misconception I, I would like to to say to really understand, you know, intelligence a little bit better for your for your listeners is you got to be skeptical of all these uh, purported leaks of uh, sensitive intelligence information, uh, you know, and all these rumors. Uh, leaks, by definition, are number one, they're from people who are willing to break the law and they got some kind of agenda. So you can't really be sure that what they're portraying is, is honest. But also, it's just going to be fragments of the story, right? So if you're primarily relying on the secondhand rumors and leaks that, uh, you know, and you got, you know, people chasing headlines, it's going to be really a shaky foundation to understand 
uh, what's really going on in North Korea. So there, there's this assumption, I think, when there's a lot of different stories flying in the press, like, you know, is Kim Jong-un in a coma or not, that somehow it means that the U.S. doesn't really know what's going on um, and that we're being surprised just because, uh, you know, the U.S. government is not is not saying anything. And just because the government doesn't say something doesn't mean it doesn't know. It can be a really bad assumption. So there's this uh, there's this saying I like to bring up, you know, those who talk don't know and those who know don't talk. Right. And oftentimes that's that's the case. That's uh, that's very much the mantra of the intelligence community, I think, isn't it? Uh, now, sure. You, you said there just a few minutes ago that, uh, of course, it would be ridiculous to suggest that uh, the intelligence community, you know, tries to know everything, and that you gave a, a, a great reductio ad absurdum. That uh, you know, why would sure. we want to know uh, or brief the president on what Kim Jong Un had for breakfast? But it does bring me to the question of what things do get prioritized. I mean, can, is it safe to assume uh, that generally uh, the location of Kim Jong Un would be something would be a, a high priority item, and that uh, you know, uh, using the tools available, that people probably have a pretty good idea on the American military and intelligence side where he is at any given time. It's a contextual thing. And obviously, I, I couldn't get into um, any, anything about, you know, tracking the, the leadership uh, in terms of what, what we uh, what we could or couldn't do uh, or what we did. But but I think that my my experience being at the at the nexus um, between intelligence on one hand and, and the strategy and plans and policy on the other is that you're, you're really oftentimes focusing on the on the so what on the intentions and trying to look ahead not so much as what's what's happening today uh, or what happened yesterday but what's going to happen uh, you know later on uh, down the road and so I, I mean I've really identified with that that role of being the bridge between uh, the intelligence uh, and the decision maker uh, you know in the end without that individual intelligence officer willing to put his reputation on the line and make that case to the decision maker all the work you know being done by the colleagues it, it doesn't really uh, doesn't really uh, get get to the goal of, of having that that impact right so mm. so I, so I think you know a lot of times it's about what is actually going to directly inform um, a decision is really critical. Okay, so that so that's the priority then is is uh, is what leads to uh, a decision, right? Or 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 to you know an opportunity or a, a challenge, a threat that might you know force a decision, right? That that they might not have uh, the decision maker might not even have had in mind, right? Is yeah. there, there's warning intelligence, um, you know, there's opportunity analysis. Uh, uh, basically, these sorts of things help uh, be the spark plug for decision making, as uh, uh, George Patton actually called his uh, his intelligence officer the spark plug of the headquarters. Kind of starts the whole process going. Right now, going sort of more generally about intelligence, what types of intelligence are there, and what types of intelligence did you work with? So, and there's a whole range of them, and I, I guess you could probably do a whole podcast uh, on the types of intelligence, but. Um, but there's there's different disciplines that focus on on different aspects of uh, again how it's going to inform decisions and really on the time frames. So the place where I really specialize is what's called uh, estimative intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, which is designed to look at uh, forecasting the future and really focus on uh, okay first you understand the capabilities of the adversary, but you're really focusing on the intentions of how they're going to use them. And again, to, as I mentioned, the opportunities or the or the the that could be exploited, the threats that you have to deal with, um, and, and there's a, there's a lot of forecasting involved. And so it involved pulling together a, a lot of times different disciplines. So, so the technical experts who maybe would be able to tell you the details of a weapon system or someone who would understand the, the, the logistics or another person who would understand how the different military units are postured. Um, and then my job would be to pull that all together and then make an estimate uh, of what it, what it means for the decision maker. And so, uh, of course, at U.S. 
SFK that was a military uh, decision a lot of times. And then, of course, uh, you know, back in his uh, NIO, these very high level uh, political strategic policy decisions. Uh, you mentioned military analysis. Uh, sorry, you mentioned military analysis for forecasting the future. How do you compare the North Korean threat from when you first reported for duty in Korea in 2002 versus now? Uh, what do you think is the most important change, and why? So I, I think there have been huge changes in, in a lot of categories uh, in North Korea, e- even uh, since. Kim Jong-un took power. And, and, you know, we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about that. But if I really had to zero in on one thing, I, I really want to make sure it's understood. It's the progress in the nuclear missile capabilities. Um, North Korea conducted six nuclear tests uh, since I reported for duty in South Korea. The first one was in 2006. It was mm. fairly small yield. Uh, you know, it's kind of called a fizzle by some of the experts. And then it gets progressively more impressive uh, up until the last one in 2017. That was exponentially bigger. Uh, than all the ones before. And the North Koreans, you know, claimed it was a thermonuclear warhead for an ICBM. So that's on the nuclear side. And then the missile aspect of it is, uh, you know, also quite impressive progress. So the when I reported for duty, the last big launch had been years before in 1998 of this early model is very large, cumbersome, uh, the Taepodong space launch vehicle. It was being used to launch satellites, but, you know, people were worried it could be the basis for an ICBM, understandably so. And so they, they made the, these satellite launch attempts over my time, uh, you know, in Korea. Um, and then the last one is in 2016 after I came back here. And then in 2017, they're able to test launch ICBMs with reentry vehicles. They're not just, uh, you know, launching satellites and they're launching them from mobile launchers. That's that's tremendous progress. And I think when you when you put those two together, the, the progress in the nuclear testing and the, and the progress in the missile testing, that is really a fundamental change from when I reported for duty. In terms of political structure, how things are different under Kim Jong-un compared to his father, Kim Jong-il, do you see uh, much of a difference there? Sure. I mean, I think there's been an, uh, an evolution in the decision making. That's certainly one of the areas I, I would highlight, uh, you know, in terms of changes. I mean, there's some consistency there. But in the end, uh, you know, Kim, Kim Jong-un uh, overall seems to be a, a more aggressive, more impatient uh, sort of leader. And he's really uh, had a bit of a different risk calculus than his father, puts himself out there a lot more um, and uh, and is really uh, pushing the envelope, um, you know, as, as you know, uh, since he's, he's come into power. So I think that's also evolved. And I I also, you know, want to emphasize that there's this sort of two sides of the coin that the Intel folks always talk about. There's capabilities versus intentions, and they're really not separate, right? As your capabilities improve, then your intentions are going to evolve. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, uh, sometimes um, you you are going to adjust your your uh, your capabilities to match your intentions, right? And I think that's what Kim was trying to do. He really wanted to advance those capabilities so that to fit with his overall strategy of trying to uh, really establish himself and and North Korea's position uh, vis-a-vis the region. Uh, when uh, when Kim Jong Il died in uh, late two- 2011, uh, were you? Uh, was that a busy day for you? <laughs> so that's a that's actually a funny story. I was literally changing planes in airport going on on holiday leave um, when when uh, when I saw it on on television um, that he had actually died. Um, and so this had been a long a long planned leave. Um, and so uh, so it, it it actually did turn out to be a busy day because I kept in close touch uh, back with the headquarters. But ultimately, uh, General Thurman uh, told me to go ahead and, and uh, stay in place. 
Um, and of course, there was plenty. Of, like, I think the saying was, "Don't worry, Marcus. There'll be plenty more work to do when you get back." Um, and so, so that was that was how that went down. So it was really it was a very busy time. But uh, but actually, I was I was out of town when that occurred. Oh gosh, uh, yeah. That, that's uh, I remember talking to journalists how that was always the great fear that just as they would go off on vacation, uh, you know, a, a leader would die or a bomb would be tested or something like that. You know, there, sure. th- there's there's that one. Uh, uh, that that one story about the guy back in July '94 who went off—I uh, you know, can't remember whether it was CNN or BBC or, or Washington Post—but went off on vacation right before Kim Il Sung died, and uh, you know missed that scoop, obviously. Uh, now, how would you describe your experiences during the August 2015 landmine crisis compared to uh, your experience in all the missile tests in 2017? So, so they're really different uh, substantively, but there, there's a real personal aspect of this and a professional aspect of it. I was, I was sort of in a different place at each of these times. So the, the August 2015 uh, crisis, I, I think it's really underappreciated. It's not really well known outside of Koreanist circles. And I think even a lot of the Korea community sort of has glossed over it because it, it wasn't really this, head, uh, you know, headline grabbing sort of flashy thing uh, like the nuclear detonations and missile launches. Yeah. Uh, and also the White House played it very low key in 2015 in comparison to the fire and fury and the rocket man sort of terminology in 2017. Right. You go back, you look at media coverage and there, there's like no comparison. But I, I really think, you know, uh, my gut tells me we were way closer to war in the summer of 2015 than we ever got in 2017. And hmm. I, I really felt that there's a lot of fiery rhetoric in 2017, lots of North Korean weapons tests, but there are no casualties. Nobody got blown up in 2017. There weren't artillery rounds being fired. There weren't North Korean submarines flushing out of port, all that kind of stuff that happened in 2015. So so personally, it was really the most intense time of my tenure as NIO. I'd been in the job and back for Korea uh, just over a year. Uh, in retrospect, it was really a watershed moment for me. I, I, I think as it started, I don't think I was yet comfortable in my role. I, I really felt kind of isolated, and it was kind of the opposite of what I'd been experiencing it in my time at USFK when there was these crises. You had all these staff elements in the same buildings. They're just sort of walk away from each other. You got hundreds of people all working like crazy together, all, all, all very close. You're having all these in-person interactions. You're rushing back and forth to meetings. You're going in and out of the offices of generals. But very few of my uh, interactions in, uh, t- in August 2015 were in person. Um, and then heading to that, by the second week uh, of uh, August 2015, um, when it, it came out, the North Koreans had planted the mines and maimed those soldiers. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, then, then we could really start, uh, you know, seeing things heat up. And my wife's got a really good sense for how these things can, can lay out from our time in Korea. She was really supportive. And, and really, she, she did this very smart thing. She took our daughter uh, with her to visit family out of the town, uh, out of town, just so I could go flat out and not have to worry about waking them up with my comings and goings. Right. Uh-huh. So she was right, of course. And, 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 uh, you know, so I really, I really felt it at the time. And some of those nights I was actually sleeping for only a few hours a night with my government cell phone, literally in my hand. Wow. Um, and so when I got the early morning call, but when there had been the artillery fire on the DMZ, I was actually able to answer it before the second ring. Um, and I went straight to the office there, you know, in the, in the early hours. The other thing about it was uh, back in 2015, the the shop was a really small operation. We were relying on a relatively small number of people spread all over the place, uh, you know, from Korea to Washington and places in between to put together this picture of what was happening. And this is before the big uh, plus up and uh, personnel that we had later. So at the, at the time, uh, the now famous author Jung Pak was my uh, only deputy, and she did some great analytic writing. We had an imagery analyst who was on a rotation, uh, Christina, 
And uh, she was supposed to be there just for professional development. Mm -hmm. um, but she just jumped in with both feet to do uh, do all sorts of work and, and uh, went the extra mile, kept, kept me kept me sane. So uh, so for the listeners out there, for uh, for supervisors and for people seeking experience, you know, remember when you're sending someone on this kind of rotation, uh, they might end up right in the middle of the, the thick of it. Right. right. So it, it was really kind of hard to explain uh, what it was like. It was it was a bit surreal. Right. As this whole thing heated up. So my my friend Bruce Perry is out at. Uh, uh, Pacific Command and and uh, my my uh, other friend uh, Jeff the the uh, geospatial officer is keeping on top of the imagery and we're we're in these three different locations spread across the the world you know uh, um, but we're keeping in constant in touch with each other and other colleagues over these these face phones we call them uh, Tanbergs that have the audio and video and hmm. and so sometimes we're leaving them up we both we're typing emails to each other or we're eating lunch. Uh, and we're pulling people into the discussion. So it's a very virtual sort of presence. And it, it seems very odd, um, you know, at the time. But now in the day of COVID, you know, I, I think this is how a lot of people are living, right? Yeah. You know, in, in, in 15, it was also uh, it was also great that I could keep in close touch with uh, General Scaparotti. He was the commander out in Seoul. And that was that felt like a really huge advantage um, that we had, uh, uh, I had this, uh, this professional relationship that I'd served as a strategy chief. So I really felt like, uh, in, in, uh, I, as we went through this, this situation, I was the right person in the right time, uh, at that moment. Um, and, and I saw, so I felt much more com uh, confident and comfortable as it went on. And I felt like we did a really good job of keeping the NSC informed, keeping the, the, the theater, you know, the command level and the national level with a common picture. Um, I, I can even remember, uh, not long afterwards, Director Clapper uh, had actually quoted one of my assessments in the Oval Office uh, saying it came from me. So I knew we were making a difference to some degree that we, the information was getting out to the field. It was getting to Washington. But, you know, at the time, it was really hard to tell exactly how much we were doing was going to matter to the final outcome, which turned out to be peaceful. Right. And yeah, I think just, we just remind our listeners decision. how that ended up resolving itself. Sure. Yeah. So there, so there was this marathon negotiation between the, the North Koreans and the South Koreans. And ultimately, uh, the, the South Koreans uh, agreed to shut down uh, the the uh, loudspeakers and the North Koreans agreed to give this sort of half-hearted semi-apology uh, for having maimed the, the the South Korean soldiers. Um, it wasn't even really apology; it was sort of a, a, little, a little bit of a, an admission of guilt, more so mm. uh, of regret. Um, and so, in the end, that de-escalated the the whole situation. And certainly, I think if we if we had not been doing what we did, it could have gone very badly. Right? There could have been a misreading of what was going on, um, because again, of all this military activity, the firing on the DMZ, it was really key to understand not just. North Korea's capabilities, but to understand, like I was saying earlier, its intentions, right? Intentions, that was yeah. really, really the critical uh, element. What was um, the, whereas, the, the conclusion about those landmines? Was it that the North Koreans uh, were careless and they got washed down with the rain or that they oh, actually no, no, snuck no, to no. the south of the border? Yeah, and that was them the there? reason why this was such a was such a big deal, because the, 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 the investigation, I think, pretty conclusively proved that there was no way those mines could have gotten there naturally mm -hmm. um, and uh, was able to show that the North Koreans had, had planted them, especially when you look at exactly where they were i mean there, there was no geographical sort of uh, way that they could have physically gotten into those positions um and it's also important that these these were multiple mines that just happened to be constant i think there was three maybe there was two i, I can't remember off the top of my head mm -hmm. but they were concentrated right at the entrance where they would go through the wire into the dmz so i mean it was it was clearly uh very deliberate um now whether or not Kim Jong Un ever is gonna, you know, have it, you know, uh, gave the order, admit would admit giving the order. I think that's something else. But clearly, it was North Koreans that did it, and it was with malice aforethought. So they infiltrated, they planted the mines, and they exfiltrated from South Korean territory. Sure, that's right, in the DMZ. So yeah. they, they never actually, uh, oh, okay. 
okay. as far as I guess you could tell, cross the wire into uh, into South Korea proper, right. but they were on the South Korean side of the DMZ. I see. Yeah. Um, so so you'd, you'd ask me to compare it to, to 2017. I mean, yeah. it was just so different, right? Um, so we, so instead of this very limited sort of military action that escalates into a, a military confrontation, you got this much more complicated situation playing out over the course of the year. Mm. But the other thing that was really different about it is – um, you know, I felt at the moment in time we were personally, organizationally, um, politically, that we, we could have a much uh, bigger impact. There were long term implications. So there's all this turnover. We got a new DNI that, that's come in. We've got a new National Intelligence Council chair. Um, we had our, our vice chair, Beth Sander, who you probably uh, you know, seen in the media, who's now briefing the president. Um, she she moved to become the head of the president's daily briefing production. So so we had a lot of changes. And then, and then of course, in my own office. Um, the team had started growing a lot, and Jung's replacement, Chris, uh, he was hitting on all cylinders. So it was a very different sort of uh, f- sort of atmosphere. Uh, CIA had established their Korea Mission Center in 2017, and they they proved to be great partners. And so, so in 2015, we're trying to explain to the world what a powder keg Korea could be, and you're trying to manage a crisis mm-hmm. that a lot of the world didn't even seem to understand what was happening. Whereas in in 2017, we're we're uh, we're in this opposite situation. The entire world seems to be kind of overreacting to what's going on, and we're having to put these headlines into context. And it, and it wasn't just a sprint; it's like trying to do interval training <laughs> over the length of a marathon over the course of the year. We're sprinting and running, and sprinting and running. We can slow down, but we can never stop, right? So we had this extended period where there's the missile launches, and we're trying to get a lot of important work done in between to provide the larger context to each of these tests, what they mean for North Korea's capability, and trying to, again, explain the intentions, the method behind uh, what the media is calling Kim's uh, madness, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, you know, it wasn't madness. There was method behind it. Um, and so in 2015, you know, we felt like we we're a bit shorthanded fighting for attention, whereas in 2017, there's there's almost too much attention. There's a right. lot of cooks in the and we got people going down these rabbit holes looking at things like missile trajectories. And we're trying to keep the focus on, hey, don't just look at the last test and, or try and predict when the next test is going to be. But what does this all mean? Where is this all headed? Um, so so for a strategist like me, it was really a very satisfying time, though, because that was the role I could play to help, uh, you know, uh, the policymakers think through uh, the big picture. And I was particularly I was really satisfied of, of how how I thought we did a really good job and we could even do it openly. Right. So a lot of times, uh, like I was saying earlier, that the people think the IC is getting surprised all the time. But in 2017, we were able to put the DNI on national television talking about the threat from North Korea, mm-hmm. uh, including how Kim doesn't intend to give up his nukes, right? It's the first topic in his briefing to the Congress. Right. Uh, we could even go on record and say, hey, North Korea is poised to begin ICBM tests, which of course, you know, uh, less than two months later, they did on the 4th of July. So so I really felt like 2017 was a, was a big year, um, a very strategic year, and, and that we ha- were able to have more of an impact than, than, than we did in 2015. Marcus, I wonder if I can uh, jump in with another uh, um, point of comparison there. Uh, where were you in... Uh let me say late 2010 when Yonpyeong Island was shelled. What were you? What was you? Uh, uh, what was your position then? <laughs> yeah, so I was uh, I was actually relatively new to be the head of strategy, and in what seems to be a pattern in my life, I was actually on Guam, not on a mission, but on vacation <laughs> when, when the uh, when the when the attack took place on Yonpyeong-do. Um and so uh, it it it. Uh, Definitely um, was uh, it was something that we had been thinking about that sort of uh, potential for provocation along the the uh, you know in that area the Northwest Islands. Um, but uh, but I uh, I obviously was not not at my post at the at the time. So uh, so I ended up uh, you know after I got back uh, you know playing a significant role in advising uh, General Sharp at the time and mm. and and looking at the strategic response right not so much assessing North Korea. 
Um, but how how are we going to put together an alliance response to this to this attack? And so that's really what my focus was at the time. Did that also feel like a dangerous time, as in 2015? Oh, sure, yeah. No, it, it felt very dangerous. I mean, I I I do think that there there might have been though a mismatch. Um, like in 2015, if you look at the media, it didn't make it look like it was that dangerous, but in actuality, it was pretty dangerous. Right. I think there was a pretty good awareness of how dangerous the situation was, right in the in the media. And and again, it was us trying to have to say, okay, here here's sort of what's what's realistic. And obviously, you know, Kim was not looking to start a war. Either Kim um, was mm-hmm. not looking to start a war in uh, you know in in 2010. Um, and so you had to put it all in context. But but I think it, it was definitely it was it was a dangerous situation. It was a potential powder keg. Now, 2017 was also, of course, the time of the presidential transition, the uh, the first year of uh, of Donald Trump as president. What was that like, and what was your role in it as national intelligence officer? So I, th- this was really a primary focus for me. Doing that sort of uh, policy review really does require a firm, uh, clear intelligence foundation. Um, and so I, I had the honor to play, a, uh, I think, a pretty important leading role in that. Um, and it was really important for us to be, uh, with the incoming administration, uh, incoming president, uh, clear about wh- what we were assessing about North Korea, why we were assessing it, what our evidence, uh, evidence was, how confident we were, um, and then explain the alternate views. So that way they would have, again, this, this common foundation for, for policy development. Um, so as the policy review was conducted, it was rolled out and was implemented. Um, and we, we worked really hard to support, to refine, to update um, our assessments and, and, and make sure that the, that the, uh, that the, the best intelligence was, was available. And uh, so through this whole process, I mean, it's not like a like a transitions like, uh, you know, just just flipping a switch. Right. We're engaging with the substantive deep dives uh, with with various senior leaders, you know, of course, including the the president. Uh, We're participating in this interagency policy review meetings and the processes all the way from the working level where I have members of my team there or where I or uh, meetings where I was personally at the table and then all the way up to supporting, you know, the uh, the DNI or the acting DNI and these these high level, uh, you know, meetings up with the, you know, at the cabinet level. And uh, the, the thing that I, a lot of people I don't think realize is, although we were often the bearers of bad news, right? Mm. I, I think everyone understands if you're going to provide realistic assessments to policymakers, it's, it's not really going to be good news on North Korea, right? You're often not painting a rosy picture. But I, but I think in the end, we were really positively received. And I, I thought our assessments were, were really taken on board um, in this period of transition. Um, I think there, there's this view out there that the, the administration was really dismissive of the IC. I didn't see that when it came North Korea, I really felt they put a lot of a lot of stock, um, you know, what they had to say. And of course, the new DNI, when he he really hammered on it very hard in his first briefing to Congress, Congress in in May of 2017, I think that really helped, uh, you know, drive it home. So so I, I feel like it was a it was an important uh, role that again really started even before the new administration took office and then carried through uh, for months as as they were really trying to find their footing and figure out their North Korea policy. Uh, now I have to uh, ask uh, you to clarify one point there. Um, I guess it's the, the danger of all specialist jobs like your own is that you tend to use a lot of acronyms and words that... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so when you say IC, do you mean intelligence community? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very sorry. Yes. I, I Intelligence community is IC. Yeah, that's what we use in the, in the US uh, all the time. IC. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, not uh, having worked in intelligence, I'm not not familiar with <laughs> those terms so much. 
Um, now, President Trump, of course, has a, a little bit of a different style of, uh, of of dealing with briefings and working and, and sure, receiving yeah. advice. How did you have to factor that in? I mean, I I, uh, <laughs> I had a lot of experience, uh, you know, dealing with um, generals with very strong personalities, you know, and, and and every every general I worked for was a bit different. Um, but but for me, I think as an intelligence officer, you really got to understand your decision maker, uh, your audience, their worldview, you know, mm. how they take an information. Um, and so certainly, um, you know, if I'm preparing for a briefing for the for this uh, this president, as opposed to a briefing for, you know, someone who's an official who's been, you know, looking at North Korea a long time at right. a detailed level, it's going to be really different. So, yeah, we definitely uh, factored it in, um, you know, but I, I don't think we, we dumbed it down or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a negative thing, but I, I think it's good professionalism to, to tailor to your audience what their decision making needs are and how they take information in. Yeah, no, that that, that does make it uh, quite interesting. Uh, I want to get on to summits. So I'm going to uh, read you a, a bunch of questions that I got here and then let you just uh, expound uh, on the summits. Sure. Okay. Uh, but I, I may jump in from time to time with points of clarification. Uh, so the 2018-2019 summits, uh, were you there? Were you sort of present around them at the time? What were they like? Uh, and how would you compare Singapore to Hanoi? And what was that Panmunjom mini summit? Was it just a photo op? Was that anything real? Uh, go for it. I mean, I, I was there for uh, for for both the the Singapore and the Hanoi meetings. I was not, you know, in the room, but I, I traveled there. Right, so that uh, will you know, not be the title of, of your book. It will not be in the room uh, or the room. Well, where it actually, happened. I mean, uh, <laughs> um, I was in a lot of rooms where things happened. I just wasn't in the room with Kim Jong Un. Let ah. me just put it to you that way. I was uh, I I was not, uh, you know, dealing with the with the North Koreans myself. So mm-hmm. I was. Uh, I was preparing the uh, the the U.S. Uh, you know personnel and and basically uh, you know in in a supporting role. So I was I was in a lot of rooms where where uh, where things happened, um, and in uh, in some rooms where uh, uh, you know I have a little bit of a different view. Um, but you know we can we can talk more about that. But yes. you know one of one of the things I want to want to say about the, the 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 first summit you know and the one in uh, in uh, Singapore is I think there was a, a a big misunderstanding about what was leading up to the summit, and I, I think. Um, there were some some people, and I, I think you know, uh, Jekyll, you and a lot of your listeners probably know better. But they were thinking that that there, there's this uh, that what North Korea was saying was like really fundamentally different than what they had said in previous uh, iterations. But I think what you saw is that the difference was not that North Korea was saying things that they hadn't said before, um, you know, about denuclearization that sort of thing. It was the fact that you had a U.S. president who was who was changing the talking points from the U.S. side and was willing to meet. Uh, even though the North Koreans were were not necessarily um, being uh, as forthcoming as we would have liked them to be, right? That he saw, you know, even before he took office, he had talked about the idea that, it, you know, he was going to be willing to meet with Kim without everything having to be figured out in advance, right? And then, of course, he had a really pro-engagement South Korean president that that set the stage for that. So, um, yeah, I mean, personally, I, I wasn't really, really surprised by by how it turned out. Um, I, I think those of us who had been really studying Kim, you know, he wasn't crazy that he could be engaging and even charming when he wanted to be they could control himself. Um, and one of my friends actually said, hey, what are they shocked that Kim can use a fork? Um, <laughs> but 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 I think what what the world learned um, is what a lot of us had known for a long time, that Kim's really a cunning, a ruthless man. But he's someone who can adapt, right? Anyone who had listened to Dennis Rodman had to say about his interactions with Kim can understand, you know, Kim, Kim could could tailor himself to the situation, right? So, so, uh, but, but, you know, Singapore was something different, right? Because this was the first summit uh, with North Korea. And then you have this kind of unusual circumstance where the South Koreans are sort of brokering it in this visit to the White House. And so 
Um, so that was that was a bit of a, of a roller coaster. You even had this period, of course, where the president withdrew the willingness to go because of what the North Koreans were saying and the North Koreans backed off. Um, but I think that the difference with Hanoi is we, we had this really deliberate process to prepare. And I'm really proud of the work um, that we did. Um, I actually uh, I and my team uh, even got special awards for these preparations. Uh, right. So so for us, it was really a, it was an example of how to how to do it right. And, and I also think, too, there was a big difference. You could say Singapore was sort of a win-win summit, right? It was a first meeting, mm-hmm. but both sides could kind of walk away and say they got some of what they want. Um, but but Hanoi, you know, people keep calling it a failure, but I, I think it was really a loss for Kim Jong-un, and it was a failure for him, uh, unlike Singapore. I think it's a misreading of the situation. I mean, Kim, to call it a failure on the part of the U.S., Kim comes to the table with this deal. It's good for him, but not for the U.S. And then just Kim doesn't – he doesn't adjust, right? The president calls him out on it because – you know, uh, again, maybe a little self-serving because he was armed with the right information. And in the end, right, the president, uh, you know, says no deal. And my, my favorite part about how this plays out, right, is that in the in the uh, in the period afterwards, when he gives this uh, this sudden uh, press conference, you know, he even cites about how the, the president cites about how the information that he got was really pivotal. Right. He says, yeah. hey, we know the country really well. We know every inch of the country. We got to get what we got to get. And so from from an intel perspective as a professional, to me, that was success. Right. We were smiles and high fives afterwards. You know, again, we got awards. Kim Jong Un goes home unhappy. He fires and he purges a bunch of his people. Um, so so uh, I, I really don't see this as a failure. I think it was simply calling Kim out on. On, on on something that just wasn't going to be acceptable, uh, and certainly you know from the from the uh, the preparation side, I don't think it was a failure for us at all. That, that, that sounds um, a yeah. lot like uh, the no deal is better than a bad deal kind of uh, philosophy. Uh, well, sure. I mean, I mean, and and we're talking really bad deal, right? In my view, and certainly the president thought it was a really bad what was what was on offer, right? And and I, I think um, you know I think there's there's value to negotiating with North Korea and diplomacy with North Korea, but but not if they're in a situation where they're trying to just dictate to to the United States or the international community. I mean, I think that that um, that I, I you know I know that um, there's different views on what's happened and why and how we got here, but but I think in the end um, this this deal actually uh, was just not going to be acceptable, and the North Koreans would have would have had to adjust their their position. Now that Hanoi summit was in uh, in February 2019, and uh, and I was in Pyongyang in April 2019, and my guides asked me. Uh, what happened in Hanoi? Because they obviously had no idea, uh, and and they were really interested to hear my take on it. Now I only had what was available to me through the media, such as here at NK News. But you know, I sort of told them that well, you know, things didn't go well. They weren't able to find an agreement, and I had to uh, be very careful how I expressed that. But it was only a month or two after I was there that there was this uh, this kind of surprise mini summit in Panmunjom there at the end of June. What was that all about? Yeah, so I wasn't there. Um, uh, unlike the other, the other two. And, uh, I, you know, I've heard it called a summit, but I, I wouldn't characterize it really as, as truly a summit. I don't even think the white house actually in the end used this term in how they characterize it as opposed to Singapore and Hanoi. So I, I can tell you, I mean, we know it was a short meeting, right. And it was proposed as a target of opportunity since the president was already going to be there. Right. And he yeah. was going up to the DMZ. And so the primary result, the sense I got out of it was there's this informal understanding that there should be sort of a working level meeting to follow on, but really nothing had fundamentally changed since Hanoi, right? And mm. and when you saw the working level talks that followed in Stockholm, yeah. you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, all respect to, to Steve Began, right? But they led nowhere, right? And and I don't think that was the U.S. side. That was the, the North Korean approach. Is they they were they were not going to bend, right? Um, and uh, and I think that. 
um, that, that really, that, that, that session, um, in the DMZ was, it was an effort to sort of draw them out and to see if we can get some progress. Um, but, but in the end, it wasn't really a summit in the way that, that, uh, Singapore and Hanoi were. Steve Began, when he goes into these working level meetings, does he have access to the same depth and, and, and breadth of intelligence as, uh, as the president does? So, uh, I mean, I can't speak to the, to the details of what, what Steve uh, Began would see as opposed to the president. But I will tell you, we did, a, a, I think, in the community, a spectacular job of preparing him. And I think if you asked him, um, you know, he'd agree. He, he had lots and lots of, uh, of good information. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, now, uh, John Bolton, uh, former National Security Advisor, he was there... Gosh, was he there at both uh, Singapore and Hanoi, or just for Hanoi? I, I forget now. No, he he was there for both. both yeah. um, and my, my, my recollection was, though, he um, he was much more um, sort of disengaging um, by the time uh, Hanoi was taking place. I, I don't even. I think he actually left before uh, before all the festivities were over, as I recall. And he he didn't fly out like uh, he, he didn't he didn't fly out at the same time to, to Hanoi either, as I recall. And he did have some very strong views on these summits. Uh, I, have you read his book? Do you have any comments on his memoir and how he saw things? So so honestly, I'm a little uncomfortable with the whole the whole thing, and I and I really wouldn't re- advise you relying or anyone rely on this uh, this book as the key source for uh, North Korea issues. Uh, you know, I'm a firm believer in a Biden by your pre-publication op- uh, obligations, protecting classified information, and and really respecting confide- confidentiality, right, of kinds of conversations. So, so honestly, I, I wouldn't have written this type of book. I'd approach it a bit differently than Ambassador Bolton. Um, and th- this whole room where it happened thing, you know, I got to tell you, I was in some of the same rooms when it came to North Korea. And uh, I, I suspected, you know, even at the time, though, we did see the eye to eye on some things. I had some different views uh, about what was going on in those rooms. And Bolton's a policy guy, you know, really through and through. He's got these really strong preferences. And I think he's inclined toward his own view uh, of how to interpret the intelligence and the other information uh, as a result of that. You know, I'm, I'm someone I spent my professional life really focused on North Korea. A lot of that time as an intelligence officer, I'm every day, you know, trying to understand my biases and fight them. So and I'm more inclined to think strategically rather than about the the, the policy of the day. So, so I think it's pretty natural. I'm going to see things differently than what I've uh, you know, what I've heard his views are. Uh, so even though we've both been on record, uh, you know, saying Kim doesn't intend to negotiate away his nuclear capability, I think I have some some different perspectives. I mean, you know, most importantly, it really seems to me this is a really personalized account. This is not like what Winston Churchill did with his history of the Second World War, where he's taking his own experiences using a frame, a, a larger narrative, painting a picture with documents and other people's views, right? This is his very personal view. Um, and I think there were a lot of other rooms that mattered that Bolton wasn't necessarily in. Um, and that, again, his view of what happened in those rooms is a little different that, than some of us. So I don't think it's going to unlock anything really truly new that when it comes to North Korea-U.S. relations. And, and I hate to say it, but I really think the definitive account of what happened um, in these last few years with North Korea has yet to be written. Can I push you to uh, to give us one example of something he got quite wrong in his book? So, uh, no, you can't. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wow. Um, I, I, I can't I, I there, there's nothing I, I feel comfortable saying right now that 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 he got uh, that he got wrong, um, because I think a lot of the things that um, that that he did get wrong were things that are a little, a little bit uh, a, little, a little too sensitive and specific. Uh, and certainly I, I you know, I, I'm not someone who, who uh, you know, poured over his book looking for these things. Uh, I can't really speak to anything r- right now off the top of my head. 
Okay, but you have suggested that he may have been in breach of the law when he wrote his book and had it published. Yeah, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, right? So no, I, I take but, my... but Ambassador Bolton is, and I find that so interesting <laughs> that uh, I'm sure he knew what he was doing when he wrote his book and had it published, having been trained as a lawyer. Sure, I, you know, um, yeah, I mean, Jacko, like I said, the whole thing makes me uncomfortable, right? I wasn't in uh -huh. issues, I wasn't privy to the conversations about what you know what could and couldn't be said, but. But I'll tell you, my own experiences. I'm I'm pretty pretty careful on these things, um, and uh, and and I I certainly wouldn't have gone some of the places that that he went. Well, let's see how uncomfortable we could make you with a forthcoming book that's coming out in about a week or two. My Bob Woodward, he's got this book. Uh, I think it's called Rage. Am I right with the title on that? Uh, anyway, it's coming up very soon, Simon and Schuster. I'm trying to get him on the show. If anyone out there is listening, uh, make an introduction. I'd be very grateful. Write to podcast at nknews.org. Uh, he's got a book uh, in which he's going to quote from the 24 or so letters between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Uh, what do you think about that? So I've got a lot of respect for Woodward as a journalist, as an author. Uh, you know, I saw all the president's men as a kid. Uh, you know, I've read most of his books. So so really, this guy's a legend, right? So, mm -hmm. of course, I'll, I'll, I'll be interested in the book. I want to see what Woodward does with the letters and how they're going to fit into what narrative he lays out. But I'll be honest with you, I don't put a whole lot of stock in the letters themselves. And, and I don't expect there's going to be any real revelations in there that will change anything. These are not like the letters... Um, you know, to, to Kennedy from Khrushchev during the Cuban Missile Crisis or something. Um, and, and also, honestly, I got to admit, I'm a little surprised that he was even given copy of those letters. The whole thing seems kind of odd to me. I, I, I actually sort of more interested in the story of how he came to be in possession of the letters yes, than well, I am in the letters, right? I hope um, that that part is covered in the book. Do you imagine it, what, it was a, an, a, a leak or an illegal theft of documents? Or? I, I, I don't know. The whole thing just seems kind of odd, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, so... Um, but, but but truthfully, I think this is this is going to be entertaining stuff, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's really going to add much to the public understanding of the U.S. North relationship beyond what what's already out there. Uh, you know, in, in my view, I mean, you, you never know. I mean, you could be surprised and Woodward may may have a spin on it that, that I'm not, um, you know, I'm not privy to. But but uh, but I think this is going to be interesting background, but not really, uh, you know, pivotal and no, no offense to uh, to 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 Woodward. I think it'll, it'll certainly be an interesting book to read. All right. Uh, looking back, what do you miss most about working in Korea? Uh, so I think in the biggest sense, um, you know, I miss Seoul, right? Um, I mean, it's a great city. Um, and, uh, you know, my family and I, we enjoyed our life there in, in many ways. But but I think, you know, professionally about working in Korea, I really miss the 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 camaraderie, the the the, the close, uh, you know, sense of mission there. Uh, you know, uh, you know, as I mentioned earlier in 2015, that was one of the things that really struck me is that when there was a crisis situation and, and we were serving there in Seoul, I mean, there were literally hundreds of people working with you in close proximity on the same thing, worried about the same things. You're sort of in this in this commu very community environment, whereas, uh, you know, back here in the Washington, D.C. area it can be sort of very spread out a bit, a bit isolating, even with your working people closely during the day, kind of you go there, you go your separate ways, right? You go back to life, um, you know, uh, as normal. So so I, I miss that, uh, you know, a bit um, and, and being in that sort of really, uh, you know, intense, uh, you know, military type environment where you really have this uh, the sense of camaraderie and mission. Did you ever visit Pyongyang in the course of your work? Um, I actually made a joke once about, um, you know, South Korean general told me that I should go to Pyongyang. And I said, if I'm going to go to Pyongyang, I prefer to go with your field army surrounding me on the way there. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, I, I, I guess I wouldn't rule it out. You know, uh, you know, relationships can can change. And certainly mm. my boss, uh, the DNI uh, Clapper, he went up to Pyongyang when uh, when uh, early in my tenure as NIO. Right. And so mm. if, uh, if I was uh, if I was told it was my mission to go to Pyongyang, then 
then certainly, uh, you know, uh, I would do it and I would do it happily and it would be interesting. But it was never something that I was really interested in as something that I wanted to seek out, per se. Right. It was something that that, uh, you know, was was you know, I thought about it as a possibility. Uh, my wife would not have been thrilled, uh, I'll tell you. But um, but anyway, yeah, so I, I've never been, never been. What did you like and not like about your different jobs and the different teams that you've built over the years? So so I got to tell you um, that that being able to put put together a team uh, uh, and 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 have this sort of focus and kind of recreate sort of what what I was uh, telling you about in in, in a, a smaller scale of this real sense of mission of camaraderie, I really. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I, I liked having these jobs where, where uh, you know, I, I felt like I was having a real impact, right? Like my, uh, what I was doing was being taken on board. It was having an effect. Um, and so, I mean, there, it's really hard to, to sort of replicate that in a lot of places, the sense that you're really, um, you know, playing a critical uh, role in events and forming, informing things and forming decisions. Um, and I liked the, the, the intellectual diversity I was able to, to get in some of these teams. Um, and so at one point, we had people in my office who had all, every every sort of uh, you know uh, you know background from the across the political spectrum you can imagine in terms of their their hobbies and their interests. I had a basketball coach. I had retired Marines. Uh, I had people with really very academic viewpoints and some very earthy frames of reference on the other end of the scale. But we were able to all mesh toward a common goal and and uh, common value. So that that's that's the stuff I, I liked. But Honestly, I didn't like the mismatch a lot of times between the sense of responsibility that I felt and my team felt and the level of authority and the resources that we'd have to uh, to carry it out, right? And so this the military, the government is very good at, at giving you this sense of responsibility and job, um, but not necessarily always good at giving you the what you need in terms of the authorities and resources. And a lot of times you get distracted by all this peripheral stuff that makes a lot of work. It takes a lot of time, but but distracts you from what's really important. So sometimes I felt like I had to fight to focus on the important things and had to sort of finish this other stuff just to sort of satisfy the system so that I could focus on the things that mattered. What are the what are the kinds of other stuff that would distract? Is just like yeah, paperwork so, or administration yeah, stuff? Or? So, so there's administration stuff, but then also sometimes remember, um, you know, when you're talking about what's important to to the decision making, yeah. you know, sometimes you would you would get to have to do stuff that was to answer a question that was asked for, but it was like a really per peripheral question, right? And uh, and so it would be it would be something where you would go, okay, I understand why that why someone wants to know the answer to this. But you do realize because we're answering that question, we're not answering something that's actually way more important to you. And the system wouldn't necessarily do a good job of filtering that stuff out. And it was it was often pretty uncomfortable to, to have to, to fight it, you know, to uh, to be able to say, hey, look, no, uh, I really don't think we should do this. We should do this instead. Um, it, it's, it's tough in a hierarchical military or government organization to, to do that. Mm. Um, and this whole question of like responsibility versus authority, that was that was always what uh, was always, uh, you know, a bit frustrating. Um, you know, sometimes, you, you know, one of the tasks would be something really someone else should have done it. But in the end, you would you would be the in a position where you were you're the only ones who was gonna who were gonna be able to to accomplish it. Right. Sometimes you need help with something, and and people would say, you know, uh, hey, you shouldn't be leading that, you shouldn't be doing that. That's our responsibility. And then you'd say, okay, well, why don't you take it on? And they're like, oh no, no, we're too busy. It's just mm. like, come on, you know, and that, that 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 kind of little bit of bureaucratic politics and interpersonal politics over who does what that yeah. would really consume a lot of uh, emotional energy and a lot of time. So uh, what advice do you have for up-and-coming professionals in, uh, in these and similar disciplines, either in uh, intelligence and strategy or uh, in the military or in, in career sort of area studies? So I would say, you know, first and foremost, chart your own path, right? Uh, you, you can seek out advice, seek out mentors, but remember, 
there's there's no model that's going to always be the one that you can follow, right? And and as a matter of fact, everything changes so often, right? The what worked, you know, a few years ago probably won't work um, work in the future, mm. right? So you got to follow your own path. Um, you only know what's you know for yourself what's best, right? In the end, you're responsible for those those decisions. And really, timing is everything, right? I see a lot of people, they move on so quickly from good things because they think that's what's expected, right? That you got to move every couple of years in order to get promoted, right? And, and I think a lot of times that's sort of the way the system plays it, but that doesn't mean that you you have to always follow that, right? Um, I, I certainly spent spent a lot longer in my jobs than, than most people do. But on the same, you know, uh, same essence there, you don't want to get too comfortable and hang on longer just because, um, you know, you're, 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 you're kind of in a rut, right? You, you, yeah. So it's this balance. Don't jump at every opportunity, but recognize, particularly when things are changing, right. And, and like when leaders change, when key personnel move in and out, sometimes it's just time to go and do something else. Right. And there may be another, another really good opportunity, but you shouldn't necessarily be in a rush. Right. Um, and, and, and so I guess the last point on this, when it comes to your career path and uh, these sorts of things is that people are really more important than the job title, right? And it's, it takes a long time to figure that out. It seems like it's really important earlier in your career, but who you're working for and who you're working with, it matters a lot. And it's easy to take take it for granted when when you do have a good leader to work for, you know, have a good team. It's, it's okay to be in an organization sometimes where things are a little bit dysfunctional um, and you, you have some challenges. It's a t- it's maybe not the best job, but if you got a good leader and a good team, that can make all the difference, um, particularly if you're in your leadership position. If you've got leadership responsibilities that picking and shaping your team and if they, if you have the authority and the resources to do that that's really key to your success and and i think it's a key to happiness too right is you want to be working with people that you really enjoy working with every day because it makes you so much more effective and it makes life so much more more satisfying and i feel like i've been very lucky a lot of my career most of my career i've been in that sort of position uh, would you advise uh, young people to uh, to learn a foreign language, uh, to, to learn Korean, for example, to work in this area? Yeah, I mean, I think it's helpful, right? But I, I, um, I'm actually a terrible linguist, right? And I've made it a point to hire people to work for me that are much better with languages than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I guess if you want to, if you wanted to work for someone like me, then having language skills is important. Um, but I think it's ultimately, if this is something that interests you and something that you have a knack for, then I would say absolutely, it's usually helpful. But it, but don't feel like you absolutely have to be a language expert to be successful. Mm-hmm. I think if you're substantive and you're culturally sensitive, that matters a lot more a lot of times in language. And, and be willing to surround yourself with people who are who are good at language and rely on them. Um, don't be dismissive of it, but at the same time, not everybody is going to be a linguist. Um, you know, it's it's a it, it's a special skill that I don't think uh, you know every every brain is wired that way. Certainly, uh, I, I've always had a hard time with it. Now, uh, we're recording this uh, here in Seoul. As I said earlier, it's uh, the 5th of September. But when this podcast goes up, it will be uh, probably in early October, um, which will be just about a month before the next presidential election. Uh, People sometimes talk about the possibility of an October surprise, North Korea doing something maybe on their October 10th. uh, They've got that big uh, 75th anniversary parade through Pyongyang. Would you uh, expect anything to be happening uh, in in terms of uh, North Korea trying to get something, uh, get some influence over the U.S. election or get some attention from the U.S.? 
so I think um, a lot of times we have a tendency to put a little bit too much uh, of, of the focus on when we look at North Korea, that it's all like it's all about the United States. And I, I think in, in this case, it, it's not going to be what they do in October. They'll have the U.S. in mind, but I don't think that'll be the, the first and foremost consideration. I think they're really kind of uh, going to be in a little bit of a wait and see mode, to, uh, you know, the outcome of the election and what what sort of happens on the back end. So so I think on that parade, you're going to see displays of weapon systems. But but I, I what I don't see is the sort of October surprise meeting or something like that. Um, even if something does happen, I, I don't. I think it'd be more like uh, you know the DMZ meeting than than like Hanoi or Singapore, right? And I think with the with the um, you know with the strategic weapons, it's more likely you'll see a display uh, before the election, and maybe they wait to do uh, you know a big test uh, afterwards. I'm not saying they won't do any testing, but I think the big the big stuff will probably come. Um, after the election. So uh, so I, I think they'll be sort of building up their uh, their credibility, their capability, and, and sort of focusing on what they need to do to get some things in place to be able to deal with with the next uh, uh, the, the next administration, whether it's a second Trump administration or a first Biden administration from a position of strength, right? Uh, last question. What are you up to these days as an independent and non-resident senior fellow with the Scowcroft, Scowcroft Center at the Atlantic Council? So, uh, so I, I do podcasts, uh, ah. <laughs> apparently, uh, but, uh, no, so seriously, no, I do, I do a lot of speaking at some of public events and non-public events and, um, and then I do a lot of writing. Um, and so, uh, we're, we're expanding the, the North Korea work, um, at the Skullcroft Center. Um, and, uh, Mion, um, is the, uh, is the leader, uh, Dr. O is the leader of the, 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 uh, the Asia security initiative. And I'm, I'm working with her, supporting her and, and, uh, with, uh, Barry, uh, uh, Barry, uh, and Matt, the, the, uh, the head and the, and the, the deputy of the, the Scowcroft center, uh, to build out the, the Korea program. But right now my, my, my near-term focus is on the, um, the, the, the speaking and the writing and, and trying to really adjust to, being in this environment where uh, I'm relying on, on different sources of information and, and writing in an atmosphere where I'm not having this sort of direct, um, you know, regular interaction with the with the policymakers of what I had, um, you know, inside the government. So, right. so a lot of it's yeah. a learning process. Um, you know, and you're I, writing for a different to... audience too. You're writing for, uh, oh, yeah. you know, for a public audience now. So you have to be, uh, sure. you have to kind of filter yourself, as you said before. Those who know don't talk, and those who talk don't know. Sure, <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure you can tell over the course of this conversation. There were places I could go and places I couldn't. And so uh, I'm trying to help people understand the sort of work that's been going on in the intelligence community and and inside the government. And I feel like I have a unique value added there. But at the same time, I got to be really uh, respectful of my responsibilities and my restrictions as I do that. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, I really believe very, very strongly in the importance of uh, of protecting the sources and methods and protecting that that sensitive information. So it's a difficult, you know, uh, balance to strike. But but uh, but I think it's it's been uh, good night. And again, I feel like this is a place where I can really uh, be be a positive example. Well, it's been great to talk to you today and to learn a bit more about what you've done and what you're doing. I thank you again for your time today, Marcus Kalauskas, and we hope that people will listen to the podcast and check you out on the Twitter feed at uh, Mr underscore G underscore two. Uh, thanks for joining us again today. Thank you very much, Jacko.